Tēnā koutou, good evening and welcome to this Q&A special. I'm Jack Tame. In developing news this evening, at least five people have been killed and police say there are likely to be more fatalities after an eruption at Fakari White Island. There are still many people unaccounted for on the island. Police don't have an exact figure and they've had no contact with anyone who remains in the blast zone. They say it's too dangerous at the moment to send rescuers. To give you an impression of the scene, have a look at these pictures. The explosion occurred just after two o'clock this afternoon. These images were taken by tourist Michael Shade 10 or 15 minutes after the explosion. If you look closely, you can see ash covers the ground and plumes of smoke billow from the crater. This still image shows people being evacuated from the island in an inflatable boat. And look closely in the background. You can see the shell of a ruined helicopter. Now, as we go to where Australian media are reporting, at least 20 Australians were on the island when it erupted. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is making her way to Bay of Plenty and should land in about 30 minutes. But just a few minutes ago, police held a press conference in Wellington. Here's Deputy Commissioner John Timms. Uh, evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for being here so late. I uh, appreciate you all coming in so that uh, we can give you an update on uh, White Island. Uh, I thought it was important that uh, we spoke to our communities about what's occurred at White Island. So unfortunately I can confirm there are five uh, people now uh, deceased from the eruption on White Island. A number of other people have been taken to Whakatane Hospital and Little Hospital. A number of people have burns as a, as a result of the eruption. It is still too early for police to confirm uh, how many people are involved. Uh, we continue to work as quickly as we can through a number of channels uh, of information to confirm exact numbers, uh, including how many people are still on the island. Both New Zealanders and overseas tourists are believed to be involved. We believe a number of these tourists have come from the ovation of the seas cruise ship. We cannot confirm the nationalities of these people involved. Due to the current risk, emergency services are unable to access the island. And what I mean by that, we have taken advice from GeoNet and they have assisted us with making a risk assessment that the island is unstable, uh, there's possibilities of further eruptions, but actually the physical environment is unsafe for us uh, to return to the island. It is important that we consider the health and safety of those that are going to rescue those on the island. And so we will be taking that advice from experts going forward. There will be concerns out there by friends and family. And so we have set up a number uh, for those to make contact with us. And so people within New Zealand can call us on the 105 or go to our police website. From overseas, uh, there is a number that will be provided uh, shortly to you all so you can communicate. That would be fantastic. Thank you. And of course, uh, the Red Cross has activated the Family Links website for people wanting to register themselves as safe or to uh, register an inquiry about a loved one. We ask friends and family to make contact with their loved ones. If they have no luck, then please make contact uh, with Red Cross 
or with ourselves. It is a no-fly zone at the island at the moment, and uh, we will continue to update you on the events as they unfold. But again, can I just say our thoughts are absolutely with the friends and family uh, of those that are injured and those that have died. Uh, and I'd like to thank you all for being here tonight, so thank you for that. That is Deputy Commissioner John Timms uh, speaking at a press conference in Wellington a short while ago. Uh, as I mentioned, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern uh, with some of her Cabinet colleagues are making their way to Bay of Plenty. They're expected to land at about 10pm this evening. One News reporter, Sam Calway, is in Fakatani for us this evening. Sam, what can you tell us? Well, Jack, we're just based outside White Island Tours headquarters and probably five or ten minutes ago there were a number of people standing around outside and you could tell that they were visibly upset, whether they had just heard from that police media conference or not, but they were embracing, there were lots of long hugs and obviously very sad moments. But earlier this afternoon, Jack, when we first arrived on the scene, it was very dramatic to say the least. There were lots of people that had gathered around the wharf, which is just a little bit further down from where the White Island tours leave to head to White Island. There would have been eight to ten ambulances while I was there. There were police cars, there were helicopters flying in overhead. And then very soon boats from White Island raced into uh, the Fakatane harbour here and then people from the boats were transported into ambulances. Now, we were still quite far back, but you could tell that there were people severely injured, uh, lots of people covered in ash, and, of course, the ambulances then took them to the Fakatani airport, and then they went from there to various hospitals around the region. But behind us, the lights are still on at White Island Tours. Ordinarily, at this time of night, the lights are off, uh, but there's still plenty of people around inside as this unfolds. Sam, for people in your region, I think it's really important to point out that at the moment, the civil defence authorities and police don't believe there is any risk from the plumes of uh, ash and smoke that are still billowing uh, out of White Island. They say that it's too dangerous for rescue crews to make their way to the island. And when police were asked at that press conference, they had no timeline. They weren't able to give any sort of indication as to when they expected they might be able to get uh, emergency crews there. But very important to point out for people in Bay of Plenty this evening, no immediate risk. That's the message uh, from Civil Defence. It's clear, though, that police are finding it difficult to ascertain exactly how many people were on the island at the time of the explosion. Was your sense from being there this afternoon, Sam, as those rescue boats made their way to the mainland, that there's a whole lot of confusion as to exactly who's been involved? Oh, absolutely, Jack. And initially we heard the Prime Minister say there may have been 100 people on the island. That was quickly downgraded, downgraded sorry, to mm. 50 uh, on the island. And then, of course, there's still a number unaccounted for. You talk about that panic and that not panic setting in and not to be too alarmed about activity on the island. We were at the petrol station just earlier on and the petrol assistant there told me that people had been racing in and filling up their cars with fuel just in case something uh, were to happen. So... 
as much as civil defence is saying there isn't an immediate risk from the island, uh, people here are probably still mm. quite concerned, although they do see this a lot. And look, I was here a year ago on the island. Um, I was lucky enough to head out there for a story. And I think you forget just how active that volcano is. We had to wear face masks as uh, the sulphur was quite mm. strong. And of course, the crater lake at that stage was slowly getting higher and higher and blocking off some of these vents. So it has been bubbling away for a while. Whether that plays into the investigation that police will no doubt carry mm. out, the, you know, time will obviously tell. Sam Kelway, thank you so much for your time this evening. Sam will bring us any updates from on the ground there in Fakatani this evening. So valuable, of course, uh, having a reporter based in Bay of Plenty. Uh, just a quick update for you as well uh, from the New Zealand Navy. We understand that the HMNZF Wellington is deploying to the region. The, the Navy has offered some of its resources uh, in helping with the emergency response, including two helicopters. But a critical question at the moment, when police and rescue authorities uh, will be able to make their way over to Fakati White Island to ascertain exactly what the situation there is. We will stay with the unfolding story in Bay of Plenty after the break. What sort of warning would there have been for people on the island? What would it have been like when the island erupted? That's next. Welcome back to this Q&A special. If you're just joining us, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and civil defence officials are about to land in Bay of Plenty after an eruption on Fakari White Island. Professor of Disaster Risk and Resilience Tom Wilson from Canterbury University has been following developments this afternoon and joins us now live. Tēnā thank you for your time. Can you just tell us first of all what it would be like being on Fakari White Island during an eruption? Sure. So before I begin, Jack, um, I just wanted to say my thoughts are, are with all those affected um, today. It would be a, be a very difficult day for many people, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so on on White Island, when you when you arrive onto it, it's you're entering into a, a, a sort of a large crater area, which is flanked by quite large cliffs and or, or large walls, I guess, of the crater, which go up tens of tens of metres. Um, you often disembark by boat and you're, you're met with a landscape that's these sort of almost like little rolling hummocks but it's, uh, as your reporter said before, it's very acidic, There's immediately you'll smell sulphur and it's, it's almost like feeling a little bit like you're on the moon or, or some sort of mm. um, incredible environment. So other times you, you can fly onto there and, and helicopters do land there. So the intent is that you sort of walk around the, the crater area and so if there was an eruption that did occur, you're, you're, you're very exposed. There's not a lot of areas that, uh, that you can find um, immediate safety. And often the, the tours will head up towards the crater lake, um, which is just slightly up the, the mm. crater. And that's, that's where it looks like this, this eruption's occurred from. What we'd likely expect is you, as the eruption begins, you'd, you'd probably start to feel earthquakes and, and ground tremors and, and shaking. There may be some noises that are, that are quite unfamiliar. You may even see gas um, starting to move out. And as that eruption begins, um, probably a bit of a shockwave you, you may feel. And there may be a um, flying rocks and, and other debris. You would have seen this spectacular imagery of, of mm. ash falling across that crater area. That's, that's very common with, with eruptions like this. But it'll be those big blocks or the big rocks which, which are ejected out by, the, uh, by an eruption like this which, which potentially can cause problems. Volcanologists call them ballistics. Um, but you may also get um, uh, sometimes a, a, a pyroclastic flow. Or the way to think of it is sort of a, a very hot mixture of gas and ash which may immediately move away from the, the vent area. Right. 
how much warning would people on the island have that there was about to be an eruption? Very difficult to say. Um, it's certainly... Um, uh, White Island's a, a volcano which um, sometimes has what we call unheralded eruptions mm. where it's a very well monitored volcano with, by Geonet and GNS Science with an absolutely world class team that's, that's looking at that. But sometimes there's no discernible geophysical or, or geochemical signatures so we might not be able to see any earthquakes or, or that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so if you were on the island it may be that you had, had no real warning until you saw um, those cues that I was that I was talking about. So, so are you and talking about seconds or, or or minutes or? It could be as little as seconds. So right. sometimes it might just simply be that you see that mm. um, eruption starting to to come up. You might see a bit of an ash column and and away we go. The, the volcanic alert level was set at two today. What does that mean? So New Zealand uses a system called the volcano alert level system, and it's a way for scientists. Geonet scientists to communicate what the state of each of our volcanoes are at. So White Island is what we regard as an active volcano. It's had a number of eruptions um, mm. throughout the, uh, the, the last decades and, and certainly the last couple of centuries. And it was um, on the 18th of November, it was raised to volcano alert level two, which means moderate to uh, heightened unrest. So what volcanologists mean by that is that the volcano was showing signs of instability or um, that it was, if, if you like a volcano a little bit like a person, it was starting to show that it might have been a bit stroppy. It was starting right. to get a bit hot under the collar or, or a little yeah. bit agitated. Um, some people would have seen that, that GNS or, or Geonet raised the volcano alert level to four um, immediately after the eruption. Mm. And what they're showing there is that a moderate eruption is in place. And so for those of you that have been following Geonet, they've now dropped it down to alert level three, which minor eruption in process. Tom, are you surprised police aren't heading to the island and rescue teams aren't making their way out there? To be honest, no. I think um, there's, uh, when we're dealing with a, an eruption cri or situation like this, um, there's often a high probability of another eruption immediately following. And so that'll be, I'm, I'm imagining, um, front of mind for, for the police and, and particularly their advisors, which I, I understand are GNS and, and GNS. So, so they'll be quite concerned of a secondary eruption, which may endanger those, those rescue teams and, and anyone else potentially there. But it's, it's just such an uncertain, difficult situation. Mm. For those of us without your expertise in this area, what is the likely time frame then? How long would it usually be after an eruption or activity of this nature on Fakari White Island until people could safely visit the island? Um, to, to be honest, Jack, I, I wouldn't want to, to speculate there. Mm. The, um, uh, the, the team at GNS that will be advising police and, and civil defence, they are world class and they know that volcano mm. as well as anyone potentially can. Uh, so they'll be giving excellent advice. I'm sure there will be people too, and there will be time um, uh, for this debate, there will be people who ask whether or not tourists should have been on the island when that alert level was at two. What are your thoughts? Is that unusual for people to be there when it was registering that level? Well, it's, it's uh, probably not really the time to, to speculate on that, I guess. It's, um, I guess the, there'll be... Uh, um, there'll be a follow-up around it, and that's a completely legitimate question to ask. Um, I guess uh, the attraction of touristic uh, volcanoes is, is uh, that, that little bit of element of, of, uh, of the unknown or, or the, the risk, I guess. Um, but it's, uh, yes, it's, I, I really wouldn't want to venture into that at this, at this stage, given the, the, the circumstances that we're in. Mm. Hey, we really appreciate your time this evening. Thank you so much.
That's Professor Thanks, Tom man. Wilson from Canterbury University. Now we have a massive team working on the story and we will bring you any more updates as soon as we have them. For now though we are going to turn our attention to some other stories on Q&A. Police today unveiled these new vehicles. They're Toyota Land Cruisers, armed with bulletproof and blast-resistant armour, designed to help officers respond to high-risk incidents across Aotearoa. This $1.2 million investment follows the decision in October to introduce a pilot programme for armed response teams, ARTS, small groups of armed police who patrol areas in counties Manukau, Waikato and Canterbury. Police say the teams are necessary to keep their frontline staff safe, but the pilot programme began with little warning and public consultation. Now, earlier today, before he became involved in the Fakari White Island rescue operation, I asked Police Deputy Commissioner John Timms how many times in the last six weeks the teams have deployed to incidents and how many times they've presented their guns. I can't give you the details around uh, how many times they've been deployed. Uh, what I can say, though, is that uh, they have made a difference for us uh, in a changing environment. So if you talk to our people, uh, they feel uh, a lot safer having the armed response teams uh, out and about, uh, supporting them in uh, their priority work. To be clear, though, have the ARTs presented their weapons in the last month? I don't believe so. What is the threshold for deployment? Uh, firstly, uh, they were set up to support our people uh, in uh, priority uh, events, uh, where an example would be where there's firearms being presented, uh, there's violence in a home. Uh, so it's very much around that support to our front line. Uh, but also they're there to uh, apprehend uh, those um, priority offenders that we're looking for. Uh, they help the criminal investigation branch uh, with planned search warrants. Uh, and of course, if there's big major events, they're there to keep uh, our people and our community safe. So an alleged offender doesn't have to present a weapon in order for the ART to be deployed? Not always. Uh, we may decide that uh, there's an offender that we're looking for uh, that may have presented firearms or weapons in the past, uh, but they're a person of interest uh, for a reason, uh, so the ARTs may assist with that apprehension. What additional training do ARTs receive? Uh, you've got to remember that uh, the members in the uh, ARTs are AOS members, and so all we've really done is redeployed our AOS uh, staff to the ARTs. So instead of uh, armed defender squad members being on call, uh, we now have them working uh, nearly 24-7 in the, in the three pilot districts. How often are the armed defenders deployed to situations where a weapon has not been presented? Uh, it really depends, I guess. I, again, I don't have the uh, details in front D of does me. Does that happen, though? Uh, it can do. Uh, um, not as often. It's normally with a weapon, of course. So, so these ARTs haven't received any additional training, but their day-to-day -day operations differ in that they can attend situations where no weapon has been presented. So they have been given extra training because they are AOS members, so they've got enhanced training. Uh, but but nothing, on top of, sorry, nothing on top of that AOS training? No, no, sorry. No. But the job is quite different, isn't it? I don't think so, no. Uh, our teams, uh, whether they're AOS and they're called out in the middle of the night or whether they're working in the armed response team uh, units, uh, it's the same work. It just means that we don't have to ring someone at home, get them to come into work. Uh, they're there uh, offering advice, 
dealing with big events as it unfolds instead of that uh, wait time. It's, it's the same work, except that it would be unusual for an AOS squad to respond to an incident where no weapon has been presented. Whereas from what you've told me, it sounds like ART teams are deploying to incidents where no weapon has been presented. Correct. I mean, if there's a... Uh, so there a, is a difference there. there. There is a slight difference. And if there's a violent situation, uh, they will attend. Uh, if there's no weapons, they will still attend. Absolutely. Is there evidence that, that arming police dissuades criminals from using weapons? I mean, there's lots of international research uh, around this, and I guess this is uh, part of the pilot and the evaluation of this pilot will help us uh, determine uh, some of those myths or facts. And so um, I really do want to state the obvious that this is a pilot in three districts. This is not, uh, you know, going towards general arming. This is a pilot, and um, we are really interested in the feedback from our community and feedback from our, our own people. But shouldn't we know that before we have armed police on the street? Seems like a, a fairly basic question, whether or not there is evidence that police with guns dissuades criminals from using guns. I think you'll find that the international research conflicts uh, with that question, so uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't be comfortable in debating that with you tonight uh, because of that conflict. Uh, but certainly, again, uh, it is a pilot uh, there will be some information that comes from this pilot that will help us make decisions. Do you accept that when police um, present with weapons, with dogs, with what could be deemed to be aggressive tactics, that sometimes it escalates a tense situation? No, I actually disagree. Uh, if you think about our AOS, uh, they're trying to de-escalate events, and that's what we've seen uh, in the past. And so I think uh, the armed response team uh, uh, will do the same. They but, but you've introduced these armed response teams not for public safety. You, you've been quite uh, specific in saying you've introduced these teams to protect your frontline officers. Absolutely, they're there to support our frontline, uh, but in turn that uh, helps keep our community safe in the same breath. In the 10 years since 2009, two-thirds of the people shot by police in New Zealand, and that's people who were injured or killed, were of Māori or Pacifica descent. Why do you think that is? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is that, uh, you know, our staff do a fantastic job, uh, and I'm really proud of what they do when they come to work, and they come to work to keep our communities safe, uh, is the first thing I'd say. Uh, I think it's really important that uh, we all understand that we respond or react to the event that unfolds in front of us. So if someone points a firearm at us, then we will respond. Uh, if we get called by our community because uh, they can't control a family member or something's happening outside their house and there's weapons involved or violence, we respond to the event in front of us. So are Māori and Pacifica people disproportionately presenting guns? Are they disproportionately violent? I'm not saying that, but you have to. You can look at the stats to show that Māori and Pacific, uh, you know, are higher within the justice um, system. But two thirds of the of the people shot by police in the last ten years are Māori or Pacifica. Can, can you guarantee that that people of colour won't be disproportionately targeted by ARTs? We're not targeting uh, any member of uh, the community out there. We will respond to events, uh, and uh, we'll continue to do that. I note that Police Commissioner Mike Bush acknowledges that unconscious bias is an issue affecting frontline policing in New Zealand. 
So how can you guarantee that people of colour won't be disproportionately affected? Yes, the Commissioner has come out and said there's unconscious bias within the police, and, and I agree with that statement that he's made. And so we're working really hard uh, within that. Uh, firstly, you know, we've got the opportunity to sh uh, change the face of policing uh, with the extra 1800 that we've got from government. And so, you know, members of our community, their far now, are actually joining the police. So that's going to help. But, but if, you, if you acknowledge that unconscious bias is an issue, how can you make sure that these individuals on these teams who are armed and going about these three different communities won't be affected by unconscious bias when they arrive at a scene? So our people have been trained, not all our people have been trained in unconscious bias. Not, not uh, all of them have? Uh, so I'm just talking the 14,000 people, yeah. um, but my understanding is that those on the armed response teams have been trained. Uh, but like I said, they will respond to the events unfolding in front of us all. In communities such as South Auckland, police obviously put a lot of effort and resource into building a trusting relationship with the community. Afisal Collins, who's an Auckland City Councillor, says in the last couple of weeks some parents in South Auckland have started showing their children YouTube videos from the United States where the parents of African-American children explain to their kids how to de-escalate confrontations with police. In a New Zealand context, is that sort of education necessary? I'm really proud of the way that the New Zealand Police uh, engage with our community and I can comment on counties as I was the district commander there for six years. Um, our um, community engagement model is the best in the world, I believe, and so we will continue to engage with our people, uh, with our community, uh, but also we've invited our community in. Please come and talk to the members of the ART. Come and have a look at the vehicle. Come and understand uh, what's happening. Uh, I think that's really important. He says, Afisal Collins says, says people feel anxious in, in South Auckland. And we've been to the Mental Health Foundation as well, who raise similar concerns in their space. How can your officers differentiate between violent criminal behaviour and someone who's in the midst of a mental health crisis? Yeah, I'm disappointed that people have said that because we want to, you know, all our communities to have that trust with us. Uh, to feel safe when we're about. So it's really important that we continue that conversation, uh, continue that engagement, uh, invite people in. Why, why uh, don't they feel that trust at the moment? Well, I think they do. I think generally... Um, it's not what the, our, the, the Mental Health Foundation or, or indeed Auckland City Councillors based in South Auckland are telling us. Yeah, I think uh, if you talk to the general community out there, they do have that trust and confidence in the New Zealand Police. Uh, we've still got work to do. And we'll really work hard to make sure that the, our communities do have that trust with us. Uh, but I, I truly believe that we're on the right track. At the end of this uh, six-month pilot programme, on what basis will you continue these patrols and on what basis will you scrap them? There will be an evaluation by our evidence-based policing centre uh, and part of that will be uh, feedback uh, from uh, our community. And so we will be doing a survey uh, with our community, those that want to be involved. And so we are really interested in what people have got to say. Uh, we're also interested in what our own people have got to say about the trial. The and, and, and is there a threshold? If 50% if of respondents say they feel unsafe, does that mean you scrap the patrols? Is there a, is there a number you're looking for? So we're just designing uh, the questions and the survey now. And so uh, I can't give you any more detail than in that. We, there will be a survey. Shouldn't, shouldn't uh, that have been organised before the pilot? Oh, As I'm a measure sure. of whether or not this is successful, isn't that the sort of thing you should have had in mind 
before armed police took to the streets? We were always going to do a survey. We were always going to uh, get feedback from our community and uh, from our own people. Uh, but it probably would have been uh, a lot better if we'd um, started with that on day one. Yes. Who's responsible for not not introducing that earlier? Oh, it's not a blame game. Uh, we've got people working on it. Uh, there will be a survey and that opportunity for our communities to feedback. Very interesting comments there from Police Deputy Commissioner John Timms, who has of course turned his attention to the police response to the incident at Fakari White Island. We're in the winterless north next. With news today, the government supports moving Auckland's port. The beachside community of Ruakaka is at the centre now of a political tussle. Could this paradise become a major North Island port? We want to know what the locals think. We've known that this is going to be a, a growth area and uh, we're still waiting. Hokimaya Noor, welcome back. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced today she supports moving Auckland's port, although she wouldn't say where or when it should move. It comes after Q&A obtained the final recommendations from a government working group report which implored the coalition to move the port to Northland. I wish to make it clear that Cabinet is of the view that the ports of Auckland is not viable as the Upper North Island's key import port in the long term. The Cabinet, the question is not if, but where and when uh, it will move. Yes, that big question, whether the port should move from Auckland and whether Northland is the right place to put it, has been vigorously debated at a political and corporate level. But what about those Northlanders, and more specifically the people of Marsden Point and Ruakaka? What do they think about the prospect of a super port on their doorstep? Our reporter Fina Owen went to Ruakaka to find out. Beneath Mount Manaya, a ship from China slips into Northport to collect its cargo of logs. Portside, born and bred Ruakaka local Peter Batten, is explaining to us what this area would look like if Auckland Port comes north. I think you'll see an extension of, of the, of the uh, existing wharf towards the refinery jetty and, and, and a small portion to the, uh, the western side. Um, yeah, it's virtually a doubling of what you see now. This big monster from Auckland coming to our little community and it will gobble us up. Sharon Booth and her family came to Ruakaka 15 years ago for its beauty and community spirit. The ports of Auckland have got three kilometres of wharf. We have 500 metres here, so where's that three kilometres going to go? But Sharon is typical of most Ruakakians we talk to, torn between what they see as potential negative impacts of a superport and the positives a port move could bring. I think it'll be wonderful for Northland. We've got the space up here to do it. I am a little bit concerned. The one downside is it would change our ecosystem quite a bit. We need jobs for our children, all our children. Where do they go when they grow up? We've got the port, the refinery and the LVL. There's nothing else for them. So a bigger port means more jobs for our kids and they'll stay here. Jobs are only half the answer, insists a couple of Northlanders we meet over by the refinery. Housing, port workers, will be the challenge. A lot of people are retiring here, so, yeah, there's really not much housing needed for people to come to live in Ruakaka to work at the port. 
at the moment, so they're going to have to restructure the housing around here to be able to accommodate for these workers. One new, one ancient. The oil refinery in Mount Monaya. The Marsden Point oil refinery was built in the 1960s, and over the decades, many more jobs have been promised for the area. We've seen the boom and the bust over the years. We've known that this is going to be a, a growth area, and uh, we're still waiting. These houses here are called The Village and they were built in the early 1970s to accommodate the workers at one of Rob Muldoon's Think Big projects, Marsden B. But in 1978 the power station was mothballed and that promise of continued employment in the area was broken. The area's had a bit of a rough time in terms of promises, hasn't it? Yes, it has. This One Tree Point property has been in Ron Watt's family since 1952. He's convinced that a port move would solve many of Northland's problems. I think it benefits the North, and I think the rail line should run from Auckland, and the spur should be extended to the port. Along with a natural deep water channel, perhaps our most significant advantage is that we have more space at our disposal than any other port in New Zealand. And this local business leader is taking us on a tour through the 180 hectares zoned for port expansion. This will be the main highway course into the port. Yeah. And, and this would have to be extended, wouldn't it? Because we've already got quite a few trucks I can see this morning on here. My understanding is that the original plan was to eventually four-lane it. Beyond the port, a hilltop marae is the very last bit of land the original inhabitants of this area have left. They're called Patu Harakeke and they have something to tell us about the proposed port. They haven't been consulted. So we've had no approach by either this working group or the, or the government about it at all. So where's the Treaty of Waitangi in this space? Where's the partnership thing? But this hapu are also perplexed that Ngāti Whātua in Auckland say they want to rid its harbour of the port because the Waitemata is a taonga. In actual fact, the, the uplifting of the port from the Waitemata and dumping it here in the Whangare Tereng Plower, this is a taonga as well. While the hapu feels it's been sidelined from development over the decades, if the port does go ahead, they want to be a true treaty partner. So our, our own people uh, are not being left out of the loop with social economic development stuff um, and that we have a very keen eye and interest in ensuring to minimise any environmental impact. We've got a greenfield site here basically and uh, there's an opportunity to do it and do it right. And I think with, uh, with the present government, you know, you've got the, the possibility of that happening. Watching Fena Owen's story, National's finance spokesperson Paul Goldsmith. Will National commit to moving the port? That interview next. Kia ora te whanau, you're with Q&A. The government says it wants to move Auckland's port. It won't say where and it won't say when. But where does the opposition stand? Finance and Infrastructure Spokesperson Paul Goldsmith joins me now. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Tēnā koe and good evening. Um, just want to start by just acknowledging uh, our thoughts with uh, those involved in this you know, dreadful 
situation on White Island, and uh, particularly for those who you know, may be on the island still. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a difficult, a, a difficult situation for all involved at the moment. Uh, we will keep you up to date if there are uh, any updates that come through to our newsroom while we're on air this evening. So Jacinda Ardern has put a line in the sand of sorts. Can you do the same? Should Auckland's port move? Look, I don't think we're in the position to say that right now. Um, you know, we're open to the discussion. Mm. Uh, and, you know, if you're looking ahead, there's probably you know, a good chance, if you look out far enough, uh, that the port will shift. Uh, but there's some very big questions to answer still. Why aren't we in a position yet? Well, you know, we haven't seen the business case, and that's the critical thing. This is, this is not a small decision. This is a multi-billion dollar uh, consequential decision for the whole uh, northern economy and how we get our goods, uh, how efficient our transport system is. And we need to have a very mm. robust case made. So was John Key ill-informed? Uh, look, well, you know, he's a very smart character, John Key, but uh, even he, I don't think, would claim he's infallible. Uh, and he's, uh, he's making the point that he wants to see uh, the port moved. And I just think, uh, I think what New Zealanders would expect mm. is that any government uh, making such a decision would have, um, you know, take their time and get a good, clear view of the arguments. What we don't so, want to see, mm. okay, what we don't want to see is a decision made uh, uh, by some sort of backroom deal between mm. Shane Jones. Uh, and a Prime Minister so, so, who's keen so let me ask, to have an did, did Nicky Kay, did Nicky Kay take time in well, considering yeah, that look, before Nick, taking Nick, a position? Nicky's uh, the local MP and she's been on the record for a long mm. time uh, wanting to see the port shift. What about Judith Collins? But she, she's, uh, she's, she's taken a position yeah, as well. Yeah, and she certainly holds the view uh, that we should see a robust business case before we commit. She so says look, we should move the port. I mean, Nikki, no, Nikki Kay says yeah, we should, we yeah, should she, move the port. Uh, Judith, uh, Judith Collins says we should keep the port where it is. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, so if you're not prepared to to take a position yet, but Dickie Kay, Judith Collins and former Prime Minister well, John look, Key I all mean, are. But look, I, th I, think, uh, I think New Zealanders would expect a, a decision of this scale uh, mm. that uh, any government would take it seriously. Mm. And uh, what we don't want to see is uh, multi-billion dollar decisions made on the basis of, of coalition sort of uh, tra horse trading. For and that's what it feels like at the moment. And, and they've got to make the case. And we haven't seen uh, the detail. We've seen lots of reports uh, and they all have different kind of outcomes. Mm. Uh, and uh, there is real debate about you know, some of the core basics of this uh, proposition. And so that's what we want to see. Should this just be a question of economics? Uh, no, it, it, imply, it, it has an impact on our quality of life in, in Auckland. If you ask the average Aucklander, mm. I think most people would say, um, would you prefer if the port wasn't there? Most people would say yes. Uh, but you have to have the obvious question, which well, the Prime Minister is not answering, which is, well, where would it go? And uh, uh, there's lots of places around the world where ports have shifted, but mm. not so many where they've shifted 200 kilometres up so the road. So do you reckon that the majority of Aucklanders want the port to move? Would you, would you expect that the majority of Northlanders would want the port to move to, to Northland? Well, who knows? You see, you're seeing already uh, some people aren't so sure. Who knows? Uh, what I'd say is uh, I think a lot of people would agree with the proposition that it would be nice not to have the port where it is, uh, but they'd also expect any government making a decision would go through, uh, you know, have clear analysis about the consequences of it, uh, which are uh, very significant. Mm. And they would uh, they'd also um, you know, be keen to see some sort of um, you know, outcome. Uh, you know, what we've seen from this government, of course, is that they're, you know, they're world class at announcing stuff. 
uh, but the third rate at actually delivering it. Uh, and, you know, so, you know, they've made big, bold announcements around Kiwi Build and light yeah. rail down Dominion Road, uh, and this is another in that category. And we, we uh, you know, yet to Cle be convinced... Clearly, I mean, clearly this is a project that... No, no one is suggesting this would be done overnight. Clearly this is a no. project that, would, that, I mean, the, by the report's own recommendations, it would take, at the very least, a decade. But let's talk about delivery. The government has announced it is bringing forward infrastructure spending. We're expecting to hear more about that from Finance Minister Grant Robertson later this week. Is the government right to do so? Uh, well, yes, but you know, I mean, they've had two years of government and what they've delivered so, so far is nothing. Uh, so they came in on day one, cancelled a whole lot of projects that mm. were ready to go, uh, and we've had two years where nothing new has happened at all. And they've woken up to the fact that, um, yeah, we've got a problem and they need to get on with so it. So they're right to borrow money? Well, no, they're right to be doing some infrastructure, uh, and it would be good if they did the, if, some of the if, projects. If, okay, so, so in order in order to finance that infrastructure, they need to borrow money. Are they uh, right to borrow well, money? Well, not necessarily. The first point uh, is that you know we collect about four billion dollars a year mm. through the uh, fuel taxes. They haven't been spending. Uh, all of that because they uh, they committed to do this slow tram down Dominion Road and they haven't got round to deciding what it's all about yet. And so there is money available. Uh, now, the, they also, um, if they have some clear priorities in place and a plan going out, there is plenty of money available. It's about what they decide to spend the money on. If you wasted a little bit less on Shane Jones, but, as provincial but, growth but, fund, but, a but bit as less on this. Okay, okay, well, the policies they have in place, with the books as they are at the moment, you've seen the latest numbers uh, for October, are they right to extend those debt? limits and borrow money? Well, uh, let's wait and see what the numbers are in the, the, the update that's coming out on Wednesday. How much, but, how but how let, much debt let, are you prepared for? Uh, well, would you be prepared yeah, but, for if you, if you well, were financing? Let's just go back to the start and say, what, what happened when this government came in? They promised a solemn promise that okay, they would just, keep within debt clear, levels. Clear answers well, I just don't want to just let them off the hook from saying, OK, they promised for, worry, one, we for one reason, they promised for one reason, that people don't trust Labor in terms of spending around, the, uh, around how they maintain control over spending. So they made that promise. Now they appear to be breaking that promise. And they need to explain why and uh, wh why they've but made all the spending commitments that they've made so far. With economic conditions as they stand right now, what is the level of sovereign debt as a percentage of GDP well, that you would be comfortable with as finance minister? Yeah, well, we as a party haven't decided exactly what level we will go for into the next election. You're the, fi you're the, you're the finance minister. Yeah, yeah, and we're waiting to see what the situation so, is so as an election. Yeah, but as it stands right now, what, what percentage of debt would you be comfortable? If you were if you were in Grant Robinson's shoes right now, what's the level of debt you would be comfortable with? I think we've got the debt about right at the moment. What we should, we've got plenty of money to invest if we spend it wisely uh, and if we have clear priorities. The priorities of this government so far have been to cancel all the projects because they, mm. you remember Julian Genta talks about, you know, she's not going to give in to the car fascists. Uh, Phil Twyford does Okay, one, the, one the last question. We've got to get going. Business confidence. So concentrate on what needs to be done. Business confidence has jumped 16 points in ANZ's latest business outlook survey. It's gone from dreadful why, why to think, slightly less dreadful. Why do you it's still think, very poor. Why do, you think, why do you think it's improved? 16 points. Why do you yeah, think it's Yeah, but it's, it's from the very bottom. The point is... Well, well, no, why do you think it's improved? Well, uh, well, because it couldn't get any worse. And the point is that New Zealand should be doing very it's well. Got, 16 right points is a significant jump. The highest terms of trade in uh, since the war, since mm. the Second World War, we should be doing very well as a country, and we're being held back by um, you know, added costs, a great deal of uncertainty, and the way that the government has demonstrated incompetence around Kiwi build and infrastructure. So I'm glad after two years that they've woken up to the need to get on with some infrastructure, but they do need to explain why they've wasted two years so far. Paul Goldsmith, National's Finance and Infrastructure Spokesperson, thank you for your time this year. Stay with us on Q&A. We will have an update for you on Fakari White Island after the break. Kia ora koutou. Welcome back. 
Before we leave you tonight, an update on what we know about the eruption on Fakadia White Island today. Five people have now been confirmed dead and more fatalities are likely. Police say the conditions are too risky for emergency services to return to the island. They don't know when they'll be able to go there. 23 people, including the five dead, have come off the island, but it's believed there were as many as 50 there this afternoon. The Prime Minister and her officials have arrived in Whakatane tonight. There will be much more on this developing story on tonight, this evening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for your contributions. Our final show of the year is next week, so we'll see you next Monday evening at 9.30. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.